the different names or some of the names of Jesus. And so this morning we have Maz coming to speak. And yes, to give him a big round of applause. So I will just pray as you get awesome. set up and ready. So Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for Maz. I thank you for the journey that he has had with you and continues to have. I pray that this morning that as he shares, God, that we would um, hear from what is a, a lifelong or a, a large portion of his life to fo following you, God, and, and, and meeting with you, God. And we just ask that you would use his words to speak life into each of us, that you would encourage us, that we would leave this place knowing that we have met with you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lyndon. Well, it's a privilege to, I always call it a frightening privilege to share God's word um, with you. And if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Three, Isaiah chapter 53, and uh, it's wonderful to be part of this series of looking at what is really a drop in the ocean of the facets of Christ and who he is. I've been journeying with Christ since March 1978, and I've made it my discipline and goal always while reading through all of Scripture to always be in one of the Gospels, studying it phrase by phrase, and every time I come back to it, it's like, I didn't see that. There's another facet of Christ. It's a never-ending relationship uh, of discovery. But this morning, it falls to me to talk about the aspect of Christ, the man of sorrows. And it's something that doesn't get talked a lot about, this aspect of Christ. And it's something that I have found has... Uh, been an important and integral part of my journey as a follower of Christ. And I want to read from Isaiah 53, verse 1, through to... Boy, it's hard to know where to stop, actually. Um, we'll stop at verse 5. We'll stop at verse 5. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. The word despised literally conveys the idea of considered worthless. Not just to despise something, but to despise it to the point of considering it worthless. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. The man of sorrows carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, it's that beautiful word shalom, soundness, wholeness, completeness, that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his wounds, we are healed. What a paradoxical statement, which we'll touch on towards the end. By his wounds, we are healed. This aspect and attribute of Christ is a picture painted in incredibly vivid and descriptive words by Isaiah, and so contrary to the expectation of what the people of Jesus' time uh, were expecting in a saviour and a messiah who would right all wrongs, bring about justice, salvation, and overthrow the oppressors. It's a picture that um, is almost a contradiction to what you expect from a powerful leader, from someone who has influenced and changed history. Some of you would have known, heard of obviously the French uh, General Napoleon, who sought to, as a megalomaniac, conquer the world or parts of it that he wanted. And what was fascinating about Napoleon was he had one question he asked those he conquered and asked generals he met in every meeting. And it wasn't about war strategy, he asked this one question, what do you think about the person of Jesus Christ? Napoleon was absolutely fixated with Jesus and the character of who he was. And, but Jesus surprised him and surprises us in the way that he conquers, in the way that powerful men seek to conquer. It's a totally different approach, and it's a whole reason why the world of Jesus' time missed recognizing the Messiah, the Savior. In John's Gospel, we're told in verse, chapter 1, verse 12, that he came to his own, but they rejected him. They didn't receive him. They missed seeing who he was. And Isaiah paints one of the most vivid portraits of Christ as the suffering servant. From about chapter 50 onwards, the man of sorrows, the substitute for our sin, bringing us salvation and redemption. The Jewish people considered this chapter so sacred, they often referred to it as the holy of holies of Scripture. When I first encountered this chapter as a young Christian and then into pastoral ministry, it was years before I felt I could even touch on it. Because the imagery, the picture, the description in it is so holy. It's almost so sacred. It's like, who has the right to preach on it? Not me. So they're my message ends. <laughs> but what we have is this amazing picture, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, saviour, who not through means of overt force and power, but through means of humble suffering, changes the course of the entire history of the world and changes individually the entire course of your history. Who stepped into my life as a 19-year-old teen or near 19-year-old teenager in 1978, and you can calculate how old I am there from that, um, 63 for those of you not good at maths, <laughs> and change the complete trajectory of my life. And what this does, this chapter to me, reveals in two things, the depth and the damage and the depravity of sin. What it did to Christ to pay the price, 
as the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, but it also reveals to me the depth and devotion of the Father's love. That I am not just tolerated by God, I am loved by God to the point where he chased me down through the cross and pursued me, as Jeremiah says, with a love that is eternal, that is everlasting. And eternal doesn't just mean lots of times. Eternal also means in substance that it is the same, it never changes, it never diminishes. As God extends his love to me, it doesn't mean he has a little less for someone else. God's love is eternal, not just that it lasts for eternity, but in its essence, it never diminishes one iota. It can never be taken away from. So Isaiah, Isaiah paints this picture, and time doesn't permit to go through every phrase, but what it reveals is Jesus, the man of sorrows, the man of suffering, who sought to bring about redemptive change and salvation in a covert way that was so unexpected that everybody in the time missed it. They didn't see it. And we're told in verse 1, who will believe the message? Verse 2, he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. That phrase, out of dry ground, conveys the idea of that he came from poverty, from brokenness, from a humble place. Dry ground, barren, wasteful. It's a Hebrew image that the hearers would have understood. And then it says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I remember going to see the, one of the first movies about Jesus, you might remember it, Jesus of Nazareth, where I think if I remember correctly, he had quite pale skin, blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> you know, and I remember Frank Zeffirelli's film, and I remember watching it with a friend of mine who I worked with, who I convinced to come, and as a result of that and sharing, he found faith in Christ. But I looked at that and I thought, that's not in the book. I grew up with Middle Eastern people with a father from the Middle East, and I thought, that doesn't look Middle Eastern. He should have black eyes, olive skin, dark hair. Where's his beard, you know? But they were trying to make Jesus attractive. Yet what Isaiah says is there was nothing in him, physically in terms of his majesty, his look, his beauty, that would make people desire him. In other words, up until he revealed himself as to who he really was, he was just one of the crowd. Just a good little Jewish boy growing up. But it's also a double reference, not just to his physical appearance, but it also merges into everything that happened in the cross. When it says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The word esteem means the idea of we didn't give him the regard, the due, the value he deserved. He was someone of no esteem. But if you back up a little bit, the last couple of verses in Isaiah 52 set up Isaiah 53. 
See, my servant will act wisely, verse 13 of the previous chapter. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. What Isaiah is doing there is setting up the next chapter that we've been reading, and he's describing the Christ of the cross. That what he suffered in terms of his torture prior to the crucifixion and everything he suffered on the cross, if you've never ever read an actual medical report of crucifixion, you're in for a shocker. What Isaiah is saying is that everything that happened to Jesus made him so tortured and disfigured he was not even recognizable as a human being. Some believe that's why even Pilate, when Jesus was brought before him, looked at him, did not recognize him and said, behold the man. Crucifixion, which was invented near the time of Christ, was considered one of the most inhumane forms of torture ever devised because everything that went on before it and everything that happened during it. And this is part of what Isaiah is saying. And I'm painting this graphic picture that he does to say what we have in this person of Christ is a man who was a man of sorrows. Not only did he experience sorrow and suffering, familiar with suffering and grief, He did it for us. See, what Isaiah says is people think God struck him, smote him, punished him for something inherent in himself, yet the whole revelation of Scripture is no. No. He was pierced, verse 5, for our transgressions. He suffered for our iniquities. And by his wounds, what a paradoxical statement, we are healed. As every pastor preacher says, there's so much more. (laughs) And there is. Scripture is endless. I really hope there's a great library and I get my own study in heaven. We could talk more about this, but I want to leave you with several what I would just call implications. What does this mean? Because as I've reflected on the suffering of Christ, the man of sorrows over the years of my journey, there have been several key implications for me that have been transformative in how I live my Christian life, how I look in the world that we live in, how I view people. And the first one is this. When I experience suffering and sorrow personally, in my broken humanity, I am identifying with the walk and the character of Christ. Man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. So when I personally experience sorrow, suffering in my broken humanity, I am identifying with the very walk and the character of Jesus. I find that very comforting. And when I enter into the suffering and the sorrow of other broken people, 
I am then imparting the work of Christ. I am continuing the call of Christ so that I not only identify with him, but in identifying with him with my own personal sorrow and suffering, I can then impart his healing grace into the lives of others when I'm willing to identify with their sorrow and suffering. I'm continuing to do the work of Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows who bore our sorrows. He experienced it. In John 11, you see it where Lazarus is dead and Jesus comes along and it says he was deeply troubled. Some translations will say, and he sighed. And then a few verses later it said, and he was even more troubled, or he sighed even more deeply. When you're a high-feeling person, you sigh sometimes, don't you? My wife sometimes says to me, that was a deep sigh. I'm always, I'm praying. Romans 8 says, I don't know how to pray, but I do it with sighs and groans. (laughs) But we sigh. Sighing is a part of human emotion that when you feel overwhelmed by something or someone's need or suffering, sometimes you can't, as Romans 8 says, put it into words. It's just this deep groaning, this deep sighing. I once was involved with a family where a little boy died of leukemia. He was nine and took his funeral, and when I got the call that he'd passed, I'd spent a lot of time with him, I immediately drove around to the house to identify with their suffering. And I got there, walked down the drive, and I heard this just unbelievable wailing as the mother was out on the end of the drive, just screaming at the sky, and her husband came to me. It was a little bit deficient on the emotional scale. It's the polite way of putting it and said to me, could you ask her to be quiet? He was in shock. I didn't judge him. And I said to him, no, I'm not going to, but I'm going to ask you to go and put your arm around her and scream at the sky with her, please. She couldn't put into words. And I just stood there and cried with them. There's nothing you can say in that moment, but identify with the sorrow and the suffering. Sometimes people don't need our words, they need our sighs. They need our tears, they need our groans. And when we do that, we are able to impart the life of Christ. Christ calls us to do this. Jesus stood before a blind man in Mark 7 and looked at him and sighed, a blind and mute man, and then he healed him. And I read that, I thought, wow, he identified with him. He just went, oh, you're suffering. The second thing for me, an implication out of this, that I love about Jesus, the man of sorrows, is I am free to live authentically and can step off the treadmill of performance. I don't have to pretend to be some triumphalistic Christian who is always in victory because that is not my reality. If it's yours, I bow down to it. It's not mine. And I don't mean that cynically or sarcastically. But sometimes I realized as a Christian, uh, a new Christian getting saved into you know, the charismatic Pentecostal movement, that sometimes there was this teaching about we always triumph, we're always overcomers. But I've discovered I'm more a go-thrower than an overcomer. 
and that sometimes I have to go through in order to overcome. And I've learned that by embracing this aspect of Jesus, I don't have to pretend that I'm something I'm not. I no longer need to try and keep up some form of public persona that I have it all together. When I first went into pastoral ministry, I thought part of my job was to appear that I had it all together, that I could help other people have it all together. And then three years into our first pastorate, I had a complete, utter physical, emotional, mental breakdown. Collapsed. No sickness benefit for nearly a year, and I told everyone I had a virus. Because I thought, how could a tongue-speaking, spirit-filled, charismatic, Pentecostal-trained pastor possibly have this happen to him? And then one day God spoke to my heart and just simply said, embrace the fire. So the first person who walked up to me after that moment said to me, oh, why are you here in Auckland and not down pastoring in the Hawke's Bay? And I went to say I'm not well, and I looked at him and I said, I've had a breakdown. I'd burnt out, and I'm on a healing journey. Do you know what his response was? He looked at me, turned around, and walked away. When I spoke to him later, it was... He said, when you went out from this church, we had such high expectations. I said, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But what this aspect of Jesus' character has taught me is I do not have to live up to anybody's expectations. Only God's. Only God's. I realize that I am an image bearer of Jesus Christ. And I'm on a journey of becoming more and more like him, which means the more like him I become, the best version of myself I become. I like what a man, Eugene O'Neill, said. He said, we are born broken, we live mending, and God's grace is the glow. We are born broken, we live mending, and God's grace is the glow. I tried, and as I debriefed and went through all the process of figuring out how did I, as a 29-year-old young man who had run a sub-20-minute 5K road race in Napier, suddenly have a breakdown. I thought I was at the pinnacle of my fitness. And I realized there are a whole lot of broken things that Jesus need to mend. And now I look back on that experience and Pip and I have had the privilege of sharing our journey in workshops with doctors and psychologists and social workers, hospice workers, pastors, returning missionaries up and down the country. And what I found is God has taken that sorrow and made it a point of identification to help other people through their sorrows and suffering. And I now look back and say, it is one of the best things that ever happened to me. that God said, I'm not finished with you, but I have to break you in order to make you whole. The other thing I realize this, as I look at the life of Christ in Isaiah, how long have I got to go? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I've got no watch. (laughs) 
No clock up there, so I said to Linda, oh, this is an endless message. There's no time. <laughs> okay. Like Jesus, the other implication, the third one I've learned is this, is I can take the lowest position in life, experience the deepest suffering, and prosper in that place. A little further on in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, and cause him to suffer. This was no accident. This was God's will for us. And through him to make his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Where? At the cross. At the point of suffering. At the lowest point. Verse 11 after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. At the lowest point of suffering, Jesus prospered. At the lowest point of suffering, Jesus saw the future and he was satisfied as to what would be accomplished through his death and resurrection. So I too can embrace sorrow and suffering and know that even at a lowest point, I can prosper there. I can grow. I can become fruitful. I don't need to fear failure or the opinion of others if I am focused on being about God's purpose and living to honor Christ and to glorify God. And I found myself coming free in that realization many years ago from what I just called the gripping addiction of wanting to be liked. It's a terrible addiction. And I came out with that kind of thinking when I realized that Jesus, the Son of God, they esteemed him not. They didn't regard him. They didn't value him. They despised him. They considered him worthless. And then Jesus tells us in John 15 that if they treated me this way, why do you expect to be treated any differently? One of the things I love about the scriptures is that God does not lie to us. The New Testament gives us no surprises. Jesus said, I suffered, you will suffer. They didn't like me, they won't like you. So why are you surprised if you are truly a follower of Christ? And what I realized in that is, okay, so if I'm not esteemed, I'm overlooked, I'm considered worthless by other people, I'm free from that. I am not addicted to being liked. I'm not out to be liked. I'm about expressing the love and the life of Christ. And it's a very freeing experience because when I was living with the desire to want to be liked, you set yourself up for compromise and failure. And you set other people up for unrealistic expectations that you then place on them. Why don't you like me? Fourth thing is this and we're coming to a close, is what the man of sorrows, the suffering saviour, taught me also 
is that my focus is upon eternal things and not temporary things. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, we read these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And get this phrase, who for the joy for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you ask yourself the question, what was the joy set before Jesus that gave him the ability, the courage, the strength as the man of sorrows, the suffering servant to endure the cross? That word joy in its Greek language conveys not only the sense of the emotion of joy, but it's used to describe what causes joy. And it's used in sentences at times to convey the idea that there are persons who cause and create joy. Whenever I see my grandchildren, there's a joy that is indescribable. We were video calling one of our family and my, one of my, our daughters turned the, the uh, phone to one of the grandsons. He's five, he's a real wagon. He just goes, hi, Pops. <laughs> oh, my day was made. <laughs> my day was made. I said, I, but I did say to Beth, w- 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 how do we go from Popper to Pops? <laughs> and then his two-year-old brother saw me and he goes, hi, Pops, mimic. But there are, when there are people set before you, they give you a joy, don't they? What was set before Christ that Isaiah reveals is you and I. It's as simple as that. He will see his offspring and his soul will be satisfied. For the joy set before him, the joy of knowing that the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice of himself on the cross would appease the wrath of God, the holiness of God, and express at the same time the justice, love, and mercy of God. And he had you and I in mind. It's the kind of suffering and pain the Bible describes of a mother giving birth that the pain, the suffering, the sorrow in that moment is, gives way to an unexplainable joy when that child is now held at her breast in her arms. It's that same kind of thing. C.S. Lewis, when responding to the criticism that Christians are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good, said, no, history teaches us that those whose mind was set on heaven have done the most good on earth. He was a smart man. I was like, how does he come up with this stuff? When our focus, our joy is on what lies ahead, and it gives us the ability to endure what's here and now. And I fear that sometimes modern Christianity has lost sight of heaven. 
that we are people who are simply passing through. Hebrews 11 teaches that this is not our home. That's why Paul likens our body to a tent, a temporary dwelling, not a permanent one. And when we have that context and perspective, it can shift our thinking. Lastly, I've learned through all of this that I live as I embrace my own human brokenness as a person mending, being glued back together by God's grace, that I am a wounded warrior and it's actually out of my even sorrow, suffering and pain that I can sometimes impart the greatest healing to other people. One of the most profound images of the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, it was one of those eureka moments again after coming back into the Gospel of Mark after years of not reading and studying, was the realisation and in John that Jesus' most self-identifying attribute post-resurrection was his wounds. After the resurrection, he didn't jump out of a red phone booth with undies over his tights going, here I am, I conquered the grave. If you study the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, no one recognised him. That was the kind of thing Isaiah even spoke about. No one recognised him. And when Jesus appears in John 20 to the disciples minus Thomas, how does he identify himself? What are we told? He says, look, look at the wounds, the marks in my hands and my side. John tells us they saw that and they were overjoyed that it was Jesus standing in front of them because they didn't recognise him. They tell Thomas, Thomas, you missed out on the moment of a lifetime. And Thomas says, I won't believe it's him. And what does he say? And guess what? I touch the marks in his hands and put my finger in his side. What was it? They looked for as the identifying marks of Jesus post-resurrection, his wounds. Jesus rose eternally, as it were, as the wounded, risen warrior saviour. I found that just amazing, that the marks in my life from my life journey can actually become a point of identification with Christ and with others and can impart and release the resurrection life of Jesus if I will embrace them. If I will embrace them. By his wounds, we are healed. And then you go into the last triumphalistic book of the Bible, Revelation, and they're worshipping Jesus. And what do they say? He looks like a lamb who has been slain. Even in heaven, Jesus still bears the marks of the cross. The man of sorrows, the suffering servant, who in such a different way completely transformed history in your life and mine. We live in a very broken world. I think the last few years have revealed that. External circumstances and suffering can create pain, 
Equally, they can reveal what is in us or what is deficient in us that we need. And this world needs Christ-like men and women who have embraced Christ as the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, and whose own woundedness becomes actually a point of identification with Jesus that they can release to a world that just so needs hope and healing. So don't shy away from it. Embrace it and pray that God will use whatever sorrow you're experiencing to not only make you more Christ-like, but to help you become more empathetic in identifying with the world around you. Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, as we bow our hearts in your presence, we acknowledge that no one has a corner on the market of suffering. We all experience suffering and sorrow in different ways. But we thank you that we have a saviour that Hebrews tells us we can confidently approach who has been tempted and tested at every point just like us, who was rejected, despised, not valued, not esteemed, and ultimately crucified. And yet we know it was for us he did this. We were the joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross. Father, that both lifts us up and humbles us at the same time. And so we say thank you for chasing us down, for pursuing us with your eternal unending love that never diminishes one little bit. And we pray that as we walk like Christ in the world around us, that we will be people who will be able to impart hope strength and courage to others who are feeling sorrow and suffering. And that as we embrace our own, it will make our hearts more tender to be able to embrace others. I thank you for every person here and ask for your blessing upon them. And whatever sorrow they may be experiencing, that they will know they walk with the man of sorrows who will bring them through and that ultimately all will be made right in the next life. And as we focus on that life, I pray we will just bring a little bit of heaven to earth with every person we encounter. In Jesus' name.